while back, I came up, a while back, I came up to the office and uh, I, I saw a package there for me. And, you know, over the years, I've received all kind of interesting, interesting packages over the years that you never know what you're going to get. It's a box of chocolates when you open it up. And I opened it up and I saw that it was actually a birthday present from my brother. And it was a little kind of a form of a, almost like a little plaque, you know, something you put in your kitchen or something. But I put this plaque in my office and it's still there today, and I want to show you what it says. Yeah, it said, remember, as far as everyone knows, we are a nice, normal family. And that's all it said, happy birthday, and that, that was the gift. And I, I know what he was talking about, because I think sometimes growing up in a, in a pastor's home, people have all these false ideas of what it was like to grow up in a home like that. They think that, you know, your parents go around singing, what a beautiful name it is, and <laughs> praise God, God so loved the world. What's your scripture verse this morning, Ed? You know, no, it was not that way at all. My family, our family, like your family, is complicated. Families are messy, right? Families are, are, are the place where we find our greatest joy in life and also our greatest pain. But if you're feeling unusual here today in your family or what's going on, don't, don't, don't feel unusual. This started a long, long, long time ago. You remember the very first family, Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel, raised them exactly the same way, you know, same formula. Two guys, one guy turned out great, and the other guy killed his brother. That's the very first family. Then you have the other family that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. Remember this, the story about the father who had two sons, an older brother who was hardworking, who was diligent, and then the younger brother who was a, who was a rebel without a cause. We call him the prodigal son, and the prodigal son ran away from home, ran away from the Father, ran away from God to just party it up. But what if, let's just for example, that, that prodigal who was in an outright rebellion, I'm sure, before he left his father's house, what if the prodigal would have stayed home? What if the prodigal would continue to live his lifestyle to be a big hot mess right there in the confines of the family home? What would have happened to the father, to the mom, to the brother? What kind of chaos and confusion would, would have been caused by that prodigal who chose to continue his rebellion with, within the confines of the home? What would have happened? What, what would happen at your job and your company if you had a prodigal employee who just stayed there in the company and just continued to wreak havoc over and over and over again. Sometimes, sometimes in your family, in relationships, at work, someone has to step up and say this. We have to have a difficult conversation. 
Things have gotten way out of hand. Things are way chaotic. The destruction is starting to snowball where it's affecting so many people. We have to have a talk. Why do we have to do that? Why do we have to deal with situations like that at home, at work, and also, as we'll see today, within the church? Why is that? Let's look at our, our book that we've been studying now for several months, 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. I'm sure if you open your Bible, it should just kind of open right to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. So check it out. It says, it is actually reported that there is, a sexual, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, we're going to deal with this issue more thoroughly when we get to chapter 6 in June. So hold on. And you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is presence, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, for months, I've been trying to communicate, I've been trying to tell you guys, the church in Corinth is wheels off. I've been trying to say there's almost a direct correlation between the culture in Corinth and the culture in Houston and in our country today. That's how bad things have gotten in Corinth. You had someone living in this over-the-top, beyond-the-pale, blatant sinful relationship, and not only were they not taking care of business and doing anything about it, not only did they not have the difficult conversation, they were actually proud of it. Proud of their, of their tolerance and, and their openness. It's, it's like the Corinthians allowed the culture, they let culture, not Christ, set the temperature for their community. It's like they were saying, you know, we're just going to go along with the culture. We're going to go along with the trends of the day. Look how woke and wonderful we are here in Corinth. And Paul's saying, you guys are missing it. You guys are allowing a dangerous, cancerous situation to spread right there in your local church, and you need to deal with it now. But we live in a time, don't we? We live in a time where people don't want to have those difficult conversations, where people will say, you're being judgmental, you're being too harsh, you're being intolerant. I like the quote from Vody Bauckham, who has a brand new book out, by the way, called Fault Lines. I encourage you to get it. But here's what Vody Bauckham says about that. Vody says, Christians today hold firmly to the 11th commandment. The 11th commandment. Did you know there are 11 commandments? And the 11th commandment is this. 
thou shalt be nice. And we don't hold to the other ten. Thou shalt be nice. Now, obviously, Paul, Bodhi, myself, are not saying that you need to be a jerk. There's always a place for kindness and courtesy. But sometimes you have to sit down with the people involved. Sometimes you have to sit down with that person and deal with the situation. You can't let it continue to fester. You can't allow it to grow. So what is he saying here in the passage? He's saying, wake up. Wake up and deal with this corrosive situation. Wake up. This is an embarrassment. You should be mourning and grieving over this situation and how the immorality of the culture has just poured into your church, Corinth. Wake up. Wake up and deal with this situation. Again, we've looked at this over and over again in the study. You know, I, Corinth, these folks are just absolutely wheels off. They've just made a swan dive into the cesspool of immorality. And they say, it's okay, we're going to get along, to go along, and look at us and all this. And Paul, throughout these first five chapters, how many times has he said, my brothers and my sisters, my brothers and my sisters, my dear children. He is pleading to them as a father. Live the way God has designed you to live. Follow in this new way of life. This is not how he made you to live. And to me, it makes sense. It makes logical sense, okay? If there is a God, and this God has made this world, and God has made us, God knows the best way that we are to live. And to go against that is to go against the designer and the maker of our lives and the maker of this universe. It just doesn't make logical sense. So Paul is telling them to wake up. Don't tolerate this situation. And he's really addressing the pride and the arrogance of the church more than he is the people engaged in this immoral act. I know, but you gotta, you got to be nice. Isn't that kind of harsh and getting in people's face? No, it's not. A couple of years ago, uh, my brother went to see his heart doctor, and he went to get a checkup because he had some, you know, a mitral valve. And, and so he went to get a checkup, and the doctor said to him, listen, I saw something in your heart, and if you don't get surgery in the next week, you may have a heart attack and die. So you think my brother said, oh, doctor, you're being so judgmental. Why are you confronting me about this? I'm not going to get a surgery. No, sometimes you have to go under surgery. You have to be cut open. You have to go through the pain in order to be healed. It's the same thing with moral issues. It's the same thing about when people are living way outside of God's boundaries for their life and they're doing it very publicly. Paul's saying you've got to deal with it. You have to deal with it in the church. You have to deal with it in your family, and you have to deal with it in your place of work. Many times you have to deal with it and have that tough 
difficult conversation. Why? Why do we have to deal with it? Again, he's just going to keep highlighting it. Look at verses 6 following. He says, your boasting is not good. It's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you, that, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you already are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's using Passover imagery here, going back to Exodus in the Old Testament, when the Jews would celebrate the Passover and during the Passover feast, they would search, they would look for leaven, they would try to rid it of any trace of it in their, in their house. He's saying now we don't celebrate the Passover because Christ is our Passover. Christ was sacrificed for us. Christ shed his blood. He died so that God would pass over us and not judge us with his wrath. Christ is our Passover. And so now he's saying, just like he said in Romans chapter 6, because you have been forgiven, because you are new people, Live this out. Living this way, engaging this type of gross immorality will not bring the peace of God in your life. All it's going to do is spread just like it would in bread. It's just a little bit, a little trace is going to spread throughout your entire congregation and throughout your life. So we have to ask ourselves, are there any trace sins in my life? Can we do a sweep of, of, of our house, of our hearts, of our soul? And, are, are, and are, are there, is there a trace sin of resentment? A, a trace sin of, of, of bitterness? A trace sin of anger? Because this trace sin can grow. This trace sin can begin to corrode your heart and to corrode your life and to spill out on others around you and your family and in God's community, the body of Christ. He says, get serious. Get serious about the little things, the little pieces of rebellion and anti-God energy and tendencies in your life before they grow. Look at verse 9. 9 through 13. She says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Again, not all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian, a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? That's our job. God will judge those outside. 
but for now expel the wicked person from among you. What is he saying? Again, he's repeating what he said in that first paragraph, that first passage. Someone's in your congregation, someone who's in your community that claims to be a Christ follower and they're living in this way, in this public form of rebellion and immorality, then you need to deal with it. And then eventually you need to get to what he's talking about there in verse 12 or verse 13, which is what I call step four. Okay? So, so you have to remember that this is important in this passage, the context of this passage. So if we had time, we could go into Matthew chapter number 18. And in Matthew 18, there are at least three other steps I'm sure that Paul went through and I hope Corinth went through before they got to this fourth step, this brutal conversation of kicking this guy out. So if you look at Matthew 18, the first step when you see someone who's involved in a lifestyle or a pattern that's destructive for them, the, the first step within the church community is to deal with them one-on-one. -on -one. Brother to brother or sister to sister, deal with them one-on-one. -on -one. Second step is two-on-one. -on -one. If they don't listen to you one-on-one, -on -one, then you go two-on-one. -on -one. If they don't listen to two-on-one, -on -one, according to Matthew 18, you go community on one, church on one. And then the fourth step is what Paul's dealing with here in this chapter, in uh, chapter 5 of 1 uh, Corinthians, is to cast that person out, to allow them to experience the consequences of that lifestyle, to allow them to experience, in a sense, disfellowship and pain associated to their choices. So it's a tough love, isn't it? It's a tough love that Paul is showing the, the Corinthians how to live and how to play out in their community. But I think it's important to realize his motive. Paul's motive and God's motive for us when we experience his discipline, when God allows the consequences of our choices to be played out, and we go through the pain and the emptiness, God's purpose in that. It's redemptive. It's redemptive. It's restorative for the person and the individual as well as to the collective, the community, the family, the company, wherever this is happening. His motive is one of restoration. It's one of redemption. Listen. God made us. God designed us. God is not a cosmic killjoy. His law, his precepts for our life are not some killjoy. Or to use some Spanish, he's not an agua fiesta, a party pooper. As a loving heavenly father, God has our best interest in mind. So when we are convicted or when we are confronted, then we need to heed that confrontation. We need to heed that advice, that wisdom, that correction. And know that God is working it in a redemptive, restorative way for our good and for his purposes. It's tough love. 
many times that creates the pain that brings us back to him. There's a writer out of Louisville who put this up on his Facebook page to, to get some responses. And it's a simple question or statement. He posted, I stopped running from God when? And he left a blank and asked people to respond to this question or statement. And here's some of the responses he received. I stopped running from God when it became clear that I'd made a mess of things. I stopped running from God when she filed for divorce. I stopped running from God when I heard myself say the words, I'm an alcoholic. I stopped running from God when people found out about my secret. I stopped running from God when the pregnancy test came back positive. I stopped running from God when I was in the back of a police car. I stopped running from God when I was fired for embezzlement. I stopped running from God when I hit rock bottom. The good news is, though, you can't outrun God because he is running after you to bring you all the way back home.